This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club. Charcoal's call for entries to the fourth annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize is now open. Submit your work through December 9th for a chance to be one of the 58 artists invited to spend the week in Montana with Alessandra Sanganetti, Jim Goldberg, Vanessa Winship, Todd Heido, Awoiska Vandermolen, Raymond Meeks, and 15 of the most respected publishers and organizations in contemporary photography. Attending artists receive formal portfolio reviews by speakers and reviewers, artist lectures, panel discussions, peer reviews, and additional evening programming over the seven-day event. One grand prize winner will be awarded the Charcoal Publishing Prize and will be published and distributed worldwide by Charcoal Book Club. For more information and to apply, visit chicoreview.com. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. I remember the first time I met Patrice Aphrodite Helmar. It was around this time in 2017, and a friend asked if I wanted to go and check out the backyard biennial that she was putting on at her place in Ridgewood. A self-initiated curatorial effort, she showcased the work of emerging and established photographers alike. There was food and drinks, a slideshow going, and prints untraditionally arranged within the orange walls of her backyard. As we walked into her ground floor apartment, I remember her greeting and hugging us as if we were old friends. I remember we talked about Friedlander's nudes and E.J. Belloc's Storyville portraits at some point that night. But what stuck with me most was the kind of energy that she filled the room with. Patrice makes heartbreaking photos, lots of pictures of people, often in intimate settings. She's made lots of her work in bars, where she's also worked quite a bit. And she spent a lot of time shooting in New Orleans. She's exhibited work across the country. But she also gives so much back and has made such an important contribution to the photo community in New York. Aside from the Backyard Biennial, she teaches at Pratt and Fordham, and she's the founder of Marble Hill Camera Club. It's now held at the incredible Gotcher Hall in Ridgewood, but she started it all in her living room. I was so curious about where all this initiative comes from. My graduate school experience was pretty tough. I mean, I went to an Ivy League institution and I'm from a working class background and um, it was so competitive and it was such an expensive program. I mean, there was some funding, but there wasn't a lot of collaboration. There wasn't a feeling of like um, that folks were always supporting one another. So I felt really dissatisfied and I felt like what I wanted in the world wasn't really here in New York. Um, You know, the galleries are so sort of stiff and their marketplaces really. I mean, it's a luxury marketplace, so you can't really have a conversation there, nor is it really sort of encouraged, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So it was like my first year out of school, I was renting this house in the Bronx uh, in Marble Hill, which is like 225 in Broadway. And this house was amazing. It had these two huge parlors, so there was a lot of room. And It was right around my birthday, and I just thought, I want to have an event in my living room. I'd been really involved in, like, punk rock and music as a younger person and hosted a lot of, like, open mics when I worked in bars. And I just thought, like, what if it's sort of like a show-and-tell for photographers, a place that's separate from the institution, separate from the academy, not that it's a non-critical environment, um, but a place for me to invite people that I want to hear speak about their work and like a really intersectional group of people not just like everybody's a star you know what I mean but uh, people that are just starting out to people that have had shows at MoMA or 
you know, Guggenheim fellows have shared their work at Camera Club, and I really like that idea that it's a mix, intergenerational, mm-hmm. diverse and an inter- intergenerational. Yeah, mm-hmm. and really, the you know, my curatorial interest is based on my own personal interests, like you know, queer folks, uh, people of color, female identifying people, trans folks. I mean, those are the voices that I want to hear. So, is your desire to be an artist was that a struggle within your family yeah i mean well i think there's like a difference between a desire and just like being Mm -hmm. i was an artist i mean it wasn't a choice it was sort of this it's almost like um one of my heroes buddy Tabor, talked about the poet's curse right that it's you just have a heightened sensitivity to the world around you and there's not really anything you can do about it. I mean, you can try all kinds of things to deny that that's what you are, but you just have a certain proclivity. And yeah, yeah, I've had different jobs, but um, yeah, you can't really hide from it. Well, how did you get into it in the first place? Where did that interest start? I think really early, you know, I I think most artists work from a place of... um, you know, not all, but some, you know, some traumatic thing or um, uh, something that isn't great. I mean, if we think about the artists that we really admire, think about the sort of lives that they've had. And so I was like, I always drew when I was a little kid. I remember in kindergarten drawing, like every single one of my classmates doing these funny little portraits. And Um, I'd lost my grandmother when I was really young who took care of me, um, when I was about two and, um, you know, I'm from Alaska, which is a really tough place. So just experienced incredible amount of loss, like early on in my life. So that's like, I mean, maybe a psychologist would say that's one reason somebody would have a sensitivity. Um, you were born in Alaska. Yeah. And you lived there until you were 21. Until I was 18, and I went away to school in Oregon for my undergrad. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm so curious about your upbringing. Yeah. About what it, yeah. It was pretty wild. I mean, my dad was a Vietnam vet. My mom is this incredible, you know, she was a union organizer and really involved in labor rights. And her family, I, you know, there's, she has eight brothers and sisters. They're Irish Catholic. My dad is Greek, so I'm really this mixed um, product of a really you know, intercultural, strange uh, marriage. And my dad was from the East Coast, so he was really an outsider. But eventually he ends up in Alaska, um, fell in love with my mom, who was really beautiful, you know, 5'9". He was (laughs) 5'4". So they kind of came together through photography, actually, because she had studied, she'd done like a two-year program or something like that. And um, they ended up buying a small camera store, he was really bad at business, but really great at like hanging out and talking to people. Mm. And, uh-huh. uh, so my first experience with photography um, in a real tactile way was like working in the store as a kid. He was selling used cameras, fixing used cameras, you know, listening to jazz in the dark room and um, smoking rolled cigarettes and mm-hmm. pontificating on life. Mm. Uh, and just had a lot of great pals that came in there that were also photographers. and Yeah. So that's when you started playing around with cameras and starting to take pictures? Yeah. I mean, I was put to work with a camera like because tourists would bring in a camera and it was like, 
you know, Americans, especially in those days before the iPhone, they really maybe only took their cameras out for special occasions like a birthday or a holiday or a vacation. And so uh, like older tourists would bring their point and shoots into the store and they'd really want to buy a new camera, you know, and my dad would talk them out of it. (laughs) (laughs) He'd be like, um, let's change the battery and I'm going to send my kid downtown and, uh, come back here in an hour and I'll show you that your camera works just fine. <laughs> you know? So a sweetheart. He was a real sweet. Yeah, he was a mm-hmm. sweetheart. And my mom was a sweetheart for putting up with all of the shenanigans, you know? Mm-hmm. She was great. What work were you looking at early on that was getting you really excited? That kind of made you feel like I want to do that? I mean, I really benefited from having these two parents that were so interested in photography and did have, I mean, some photo books, but not many. Um, And just discussions about like what a good photograph is and, um, yeah, going to the public library and looking at a ton of books. Like I remember seeing a Mary Ellen Mark book really early on and just thinking like, oh, like women can do this too. Like it's not just maybe a dude thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was all there and uh but I really I sort of feel like I was isolated from photography post you know maybe 1974 or whenever you know he kind of came up to Alaska it was sort of this time capsule that I was living in also being isolated from you know the rest of the country or the rest of the world in a way mm-hmm. um that it was a focus on like documentary style work and that his teachers had been part of the FSA movement. Um, and he had come to Alaska to work on a documentary film. So you're dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About the pipeline, the oil pipeline. Ah, so I didn't realize. So he was an artist too. Reluctantly. Uh-huh. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he never had a gallery show or anything like that, but his work is in the archives. Um, at the Alaska State Library and Museum, and hmm. he made me, I mean, he was a really fantastic photographer and hmm. a really good printer. Where did you want to go with it? What did you want to take pictures of? Has that changed, or is it... Um... I think it definitely has changed. I, I started out making work, um, you know, very unseriously as a kid, for sort of like functioning as this job that I had and I would just roam around on the streets and make portraits or pictures of my town and um, when I got to undergrad when I went to college in southern Oregon my senior year I finally took a like a darkroom photo class and I'd kind of put it off because I'd already been printing I'd already been working with my you know parents for a while and uh, and right around that time my dad was in the hospital, which was really intense. And um, that week we were supposed to be doing portraits. And so I brought my camera up to the hospital and shot like a couple rolls in the hospital room. And he ended up dying like that next day. Those super intense um, thing that happened. Um, but that those photographs were uh, really solidified the fact that and the eventual sale of the shop and the rise of digital technology and digital photography that this is something, you know, um, we talk about apprenticeship, right? Uh, A little bit like if your dad is a baker, 
maybe you become a baker or that things are handed down in families. And so I felt a sort of responsibility to continue that work um, after my dad died, definitely. Hmm. You worked in bars for many years. Mm-hmm. And you made a lot of work in those kinds of settings. Yeah. I'm curious about how you would work in the bar. Would you just be taking pictures as you're working as a bartender? Or would you have to get into like a kind of separate zone where they... Was that just a venue that you made pictures in, or was it all happening at the same time? I don't think I was taking it as seriously. I don't think I had... Mm -hmm. I was very uninhibited because I didn't have any... You know, there was no other voices in my head telling me what to do or not to do, so I was sometimes making pictures behind the bar as a bartender. I have a self-portrait that I made of myself at, like, 23. Um, I would photograph my friends and patrons at the bar from behind the bar. Um, yeah, I just, I knew that I needed to be taking pictures at that time in my life because it was so wild, you know? How so? I was hoping that I wouldn't live like that forever. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't sure. And it was sort of this mix of um, fear of not knowing if this is what I would do until I was an older person. But I remember talking to other people and saying like, this is like jumping on a train and you know, it's like fast and fun, but you have to jump off the train because it doesn't end well. Mm -hmm. And the evidence of that was, you know, all around me. Um, Mm -hmm. I have some friends that are professional bartenders and are like, I think they're Zen masters. They've my, one of my dear friends, Sharon Pearson is coming up on her 20th anniversary as a bartender. And, She's amazing. I don't know how she does it. Um, And it really is a trade. Uh, In the movie Cocktail, they say, (laughs) there's this quote that it's the aristocracy of the working class is the bartender, (laughs) which is true. You know, it really is a high position of regard. You play a certain role in the community. Mm -hmm. It's true. But as you might imagine, I come from a pretty tough-ass town. Yeah, so... Um, I went into social work as a transition between bartending and, um, going into a career in education. And I think that was a really interesting, uh, choice. What kind of social work do you do? I worked with children who were having difficulty in their families, uh, and helping them in school, helping them to like be able to be in the classroom as a child advocate. Um, in elementary schools. So that was my first social work. And then I worked um, in summer programs with kids, just getting them out of the house and planning programming and taking them on field trips and taking them to the library. And But um, it made me realize that I wanted to go back into the public schools that I somehow, by the grace of God, managed to graduate and become a teacher, like a full-on public school teacher. So you teach photography now, but you want to become a public school teacher at first. Yes, because that's a more reasonable profession, going back to this idea of like having a real career, right? If you come from Mm -hmm. a family where it's like your parents aren't going to pay your rent or no one's going to buy you a condo in Chelsea when you graduate or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're not going to rent out a gallery space for you to be Little Lord Fauntleroy in or whatever Mm -hmm. the case may be, right? Um, That you have to have... You know, you should have a career and it should be doing something that's 
useful for your community or whatever. Um, I went and studied with my favorite English high school teacher who was still teaching at the time. And um, it was like a two-year program. And I was his assistant teacher for like nine months. It was like a practicum. Um, And I was a classroom teacher for, you know, the next two years, which was really great. I really loved it. So how come you stopped? I stopped for a couple reasons. Um, I went into public teaching because I wanted to teach, but also because I could have had a retirement. I was about to sign on for like another year, and I was looking for like a more permanent position. And uh, the legislature changed the rules for um, tenure for teachers and said that you would have to maybe work seven years, but they weren't really sure until you had health insurance and all this other stuff. And um, around that same time, I married my partner, which was really exciting. And I did a solo honeymoon, which was a um, workshop with Mary Ellen Mark. Mm-hmm. And made a bunch of work in Iceland. And, uh, you know, she was really amazing figure and really taught me a lot. I think it's kind of dangerous to go meet your heroes sometimes because it, sometimes it can be not what you might imagine. But that workshop was great. And I think it really changed my life. I mean, I know it did. Um And I just realized that that's what I had always, I'd never had a week off to just do that. Mm -hmm. To just take pictures and to be in that environment where you're looking at stuff, talking about stuff, like in a critical discourse. Yeah, I'd always, I mean, and even just to be real, I mean, I was working like two or three jobs. I worked my way through my master's program. I was a wait, I was a cocktail waitress at the bubble room. Mm -hmm. Um, as I was like becoming a teacher, like I'd never just had a time to myself where I didn't have to go to work. I'm not saying that you need that because I, you know, I think often of, um, you know, other working class artists that do do a job and then get done and make their, you know, think about, you know, Tilly Olson, great American writer, had kids and woke up at five in the morning and banged it out, you know, but it certainly helped knowing how to work, you know, would go out for hours and hours and hours and just, it was more of sort of a luxury vacation thing. I think for some of the workshop people, um, they needed guides and I, I just, I couldn't afford to have a guide, nor did I really want somebody hanging out with me. Like that seemed, um, I, I like being alone when I take pictures most of the time. Yeah. But yeah, you just have to like, you know, do it. What kind of pictures are you taking there? Well, I mean, the Icelandic bar scene, I just kept ending up back around. I sort of found the town. Mm-hmm. And God, Icelanders are gorgeous and so talented. It became this source of fascination for me afterward for the next few years because it was almost as if like Alaskans had, what would it be like if Alaskans had socialized medicine and really like really valued education you know Icelanders are so literate I think I'm not sure if it's um Iceland or Sweden that has the highest per capita rate of novelists something Mm. wild like that but Mm. 
It's really acceptable to be an artist there because the government supports it. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Patrice Aphrodite-Helmar that we recorded in Ridgewood. To find out more about the show and to see some more of her work, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How do you like to work with people? Well, I like to get to know them mm-hmm. beforehand. You're never grabbing pictures. Well, sometimes. I mean, there are some hit-and-run mm-hmm. photographs, especially in um, New York and in New Orleans and um, on the street and or, you know, in the world. Um, I wouldn't call myself a street photographer. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I like to go back as much as I can, and I like to spend time with people and um, really get to know who they are. And, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's really important. Mm-hmm. If you want, if you want to make portraits, maybe liking people helps. Yeah, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, it's it's funny. It, that reminds me of something that um, L. Perez said, which was, well, I'd asked them, you know, how you take, how you take a good portrait of someone, yeah. how you take a good picture of someone, and they just said something like, "Well, you you love you you love yeah. them." Yeah. And I just thought it was so profound in its simplicity. And they're right. You do have to fall in love or be in love in a way. And uh, I always remind myself that love is a verb. Mm. You know, that it's an action word. Mm-hmm. And so, right, and the Greeks have all these different forms of the word love, too, that are really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by the ability of a photographer to get that in a picture because you know your cameras are these very smart stupid little instruments where you're just pressing a button um <laughs> <laughs> how do you get that into a picture i mean it's uh there's a magic in it that i'm always yeah. really fascinated by well i'm sure that there's some critical theory text i could pull out about <laughs> like the object and um I know it's been written about and talked about before, but I like to tell the story of the first time I saw a um, Mark Rothko color field painting, which was sort of later in life because, you know, museums. And uh, I realized that an object can have an effect on us, that an artist can do something in what, you know, their relation or their work that has an impact on us emotionally, uh, even physically, right? That we react to work. And before that, I'd just seen Rothko's in textbooks and they look like funnily colored postage stamps, but I stood in front of a Rothko, I think in San Francisco, my dad had brought me down um, for a spring break 
one time when I was in school because he that's where he had gone to college and I just you know you get goosebumps and you feel things and you're like what the hell is going on yeah it's beautiful um so I don't know how you do that I don't know how that works that alchemy um but I know I'm delighted that it can happen and that I aspire to that sort of transference and I hope that I mean, that's everybody's hope, right? That what we're doing, that somebody else gets it or somebody else has a feeling or is moved by it and that it lasts longer than we do. And how it does actually happen, you know, when you actually look at that picture, that thing you you made or that someone else made and you kind of actually, you feel that. It's just, yeah, maybe one of the most inspiring things. Yeah, it's the best. Yeah. That's the dragon we keep chasing, you yeah. know? I want to ask you about your your recent exhibition at Ortega y Gasset. It's called Feeling Good About Me. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear about it. Well, I really love the folks at OYG Projects. They're, it's an artist-run space and mainly painters and some, you know, some people working in sculpture. But so I, there was a small budget, which I used to buy some wood paneling, which is like ubiquitous and... Um, the homes that I grew up in and many of the bars that I also worked at um, a varying degree. But we paneled pretty much the entire portion of the gallery of the installation. And because they didn't want us to really build a bar, we made like a symbolic symbolic bar out of... um, a an old shelf we found on the street and we I sanded it and painted it and it looks more like a shelf but it symbolizes the bar counter mm-hmm. and then found a really amazing mirror on Craigslist which I'm I have a bit of a problem with, <laughs> with Craigslist in terms of how much I love it uh, from Staten Island uh, went out there and got this incredible Italian mirror that had been in the house for like two generations and hung that as the barroom mirror. It's it's quite a it was quite an installation. Also found a man that restalled re or excuse me, we found a man that refurbished jukeboxes from the nineteen fifties. Mm-hmm. His name's Terrence Swords and he's amazing. And he has um, a business called New York Jukebox where he will rent jukeboxes for events and so on and so forth. But the website looked just so interesting that I really wanted to go meet this guy because I didn't think I could afford to rent a jukebox for the length of the show, but I thought, let me go talk to this guy. I bet he's really, really cool. He has a shop in Crown Heights, and there's like all these jukeboxes and various states of repair, and he was like smoking a cigar and listening to records, and I was instantly just like, it reminded me of my dad's shop. It was great. There's people hanging out, you know. <laughs> from the neighborhood and I think we talked for like an hour and a half or something just about music and he kept putting in 45s He's like oh listen to this like you like music from New Orleans like check out this this is uh, you know so and so or whatever and um we came to an agreement like he's interested in art that he would be interested in helping me um put together a jukebox of songs that I really love a lot that means something to me. So this jukebox from 
I'm sure I'll get the year wrong, 1950-something, that's just gorgeous, is living installed in this exhibition with photographs from New Orleans and photographs from Alaska um, and serves as the soundtrack with hand-picked 45s. Mm-hmm. How do you think about the edit of photos that you wanted to show? Well, I knew that I wanted to show some of the work from Alaska, this work uh, that I've, the series that I've titled Dirty Old Town that I'm still working on that's all made with 4 by 5 um, but I didn't want it to be all that because also, I've also been working in uh, the south and Louisiana and uh, Texas and all over the place for the last few years and so I chose um, I think it's about 10 photos from Alaska and then there are I want to say six smaller prints from New Orleans. There's one from Paris. There's one from Juneau that sort of sit installed up against the mirror. And those are all portraits of women um, or female-identifying people. Um, Yeah, and I was really thinking about my experiences going back home. You know, I was thinking about... um, I'd read this essay with a class by Judith Butler, which is called Politics, Mourning, and Violence, I think. And there's this really incredible uh, passage in the essay where she talks about, um, you know, when there's something traumatic that draws us away from our home going back can be really complicated and of course Thomas Wolfe writes about this too that you can't really go home and there's all these ideas about what it means to go home but I'd made these photographs like 15 years after I'd been um, a bartender a really young woman but thinking about those feelings that I had um, dealing with the loss of a parent and dealing with really not having money and having to support myself and being in a really difficult, um, environment. Um, and just going back to these old haunts, you know, these old bars and I still had access to them. I've still been in them. I'm still like, you know, the bartenders around town, many of them are my dear friends, like, um, and going back to that idea of like making work about what you know, like that's what I had access to. And it's such a hard thing to get into in the first place. Um, you really have to prove yourself as a person to become a bartender, that you're trustworthy, Mm -hmm. um, in that sort of demi mond, um, that I knew that there are pictures that I wanted to make. Do you feel the same way about being a photographer in that sense? You have to prove yourself. I think so. I think it's a lot different. I think there's a lot, there's different stakes, you know, being a bartender is, um, you know, you're, you listen to people, you help people find jobs, you maybe help people find a house, a house to live in or childcare. Um, and you're also getting people drunk, (laughs) by the way, right? (laughs) That's another part of it. And, um, you have to be sort of trustworthy. People have to know that you're not going to go around town with what they've told you or that if they come in with somebody that's not their person that, you know, mm-hmm. 
what do you think makes an interesting picture? What are you after? And I'm not always after the same thing, right? It's There's a lot of improvisation and chance and luck. I think luck is something that maybe we don't talk enough about as photographers that I don't, I'm not somebody that maybe meticulously plans things, but I'm ready, right? Like I have my gear. I know how many rolls of film I have. I give myself my working hours mm-hmm. um, and I don't like wait for the muse or whatever. Um, you just go out and do it. Yeah. I think think when you come from a background where you're used to having a shift like you can just have a shift of making photographs Mm -hmm. and approach it from a similar way right do you feel that when you're out taking pictures that you you kind of know when you see it or you need to discover that thing that that is of interest by doing it both Mm -hmm. i like to think about like helen levitt and you know one of my mentors talks about how she had a second sight that she sort of knew that something was about to happen that there was a sense that something would was about to unfold and so that she was ready to take a picture she didn't shoot a lot mm-hmm. you know she there's a bbc interview with her where she said she decided early on that she wouldn't make bad pictures like i'm not helen levitt i mean i make a lot of bad pictures and i have to fail over and over again um but I do have a sense sometimes that something's about to happen or I can place myself in a uh, environment that feels a certain way, that there's an energy to it that mm-hmm. I like. Um, and part of that has to do with working in really intense situations with children, like um, working in, in intense situations with adults where you have to read the room or you have to read you know, um, and somebody comes into the bar and they're, are they going to be a problem? Mm-hmm. Right. You need to get them out right away. Or if a kid is about to have a meltdown, you need to anticipate that and try to deescalate the situation. So there's all this training that I've had on that end socially, you know, in my social work where, um, the first time I was in new Orleans, I, the first time I went to bourbon street, it was a really wild night. And Um, I just didn't like the vibe. I don't know what it was, but I'd taken a few pictures. I hadn't decided that that's where I was going to make a bunch of pictures because it just felt, it's, it's so touristy and I come from a tourist town. So I'm out, you know, making pictures and I'm just totally sweaty because it's so hot. And, um, I just, something told me like, it's time to go home. Like, this is not good. It just was too many, uh, kids and this just sort of frenetic feeling that I didn't like. And I got home and I went to sleep. I was staying at a friend's house in New Orleans at the time. And the next morning I got a call from my friend Rola Kayat, who's also a photographer. And she's like, are you all right? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. She's like, oh, did you see, uh, did you see the news? Did you look at Twitter this morning? And I guess there'd been a shooting that happened no less than 10 minutes after I'd left bourbon street like um i don't think anybody got killed but some people had been injured and you know so i'm not always knock on wood like you can't predict that you can't know that but if you pay attention to the world around you and your surroundings like hopefully you have the sense to trust your gut and get out of a place too if it's not good um and i've always that's you know that's all we really have Mm-hmm. Gut. 
is our gut feelings about things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in terms of what I'm looking for, uh, you know, what am I afraid of? What do I desire? What do I think is beautiful? Um, you know, I'm looking for couples sometimes. I love love at public displays of affection. I like it when people have fights, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for uh, dramatic potential. Mm-hmm. It's what one of my great photography teachers talked about, the dramatic potential. How can you make a f- how can you make something more exciting? How can you frame something? You know, where are you and who are you and um you know, Ouija made those photos because he was Ouija. Helen Levitt made those photos because she was Helen Levitt. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, so how do you make those pictures who are who are you or that are you? Yeah. You have to be honest about what you desire and what you care about. And um, sometimes that means feeling a lot of anxiety or being in situations that are not comfortable and yeah, it might, it might mean you don't have a very conventional life. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that goes to the same. Yeah. Most, most photographers yeah, don't have yeah. very conventional lives. Exactly. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking. I'm a real crowd pleaser, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Uh, I wish we could have done it in the backyard. It's so much nicer out there. Let's go out there and maybe try and take some pictures. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jordan. That was my conversation with Patrice Aphrodite Helmar that we recorded in Ridgewood. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Original music in this episode by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.